Well, anybody who comes in late is going to think they're really, really late today. Uh, if you only had a few moments left to live, what would you choose to say? What would be your final words? Or, or if you knew a loved one had just a few moments left, you'd probably listen a lot more carefully to their, to their final words. The, the final words of someone can be powerful, meaningful, impactful to our lives. I got lost a few weeks ago in a Google black hole as I went searching for famous last words from people. And there are literally thousands of last words recorded from famous people throughout the ages. Here's a few that stood out to me. Stephen Hawking, renowned mathematician, very inspirationally, his last words were this, be brave, be determined, overcome the odds, it can be done. Bob Marley, great last words, money can't buy life. Isn't that powerful? Charlie Chaplin, the silent film star, after a priest read him his last rites saying, may the Lord have mercy on your soul, Chaplin said, why not? After all, it all belongs to him. That's good. Mother Teresa, as I can imagine, only Mother Teresa could say her last words were, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. John Wesley, father of the Methodist movement and revival, said, the best of all is this, God is with us. Last words before he passed. Well, one more I'll, I'll share with you. It might be the most painful one of all. It wasn't shared before someone died, but it can be called last words. On February 3rd of this year, Super Bowl Sunday, the last thing I said to you before I walked off the platform was go Rams. And I've been regretting it ever since. Right? I think I jinxed them by saying that publicly. I will never do that again. Right? Uh, I, you might be thinking, where in the world are you going with this? Nowhere. I just want to complain about the Patriots. It's a Christian thing to do, right? Especially on a day like today. No, that's not where I'm going. As powerful as our own last words can be, as meaningful as a loved one's or a famous person's last words are, I'm not sure anything can compare to the last recorded words of Jesus from the cross. That's what we're looking at in, his, in this sermon series we're starting today called Seven. We're looking at the seven final statements of Jesus from the cross before he would uh, die here and then be risen from the dead. If you're new here, by the way, my name is Jeff Manis. I am the lead pastor here, and congratulations on being part of the Frozen Chosen today. Uh, you made your way out in this bitter cold weather. Even those of us who grew up in Wyoming, we think this is cold, all right? So just so you know, this is really, really cold today. Uh, whether you're here in the auditorium or joining us on video or in a video service later today, I'm so glad that all of you are here with us. Yes, this seven-week series will take us all the way up to Easter Sunday, and we're going be talking about those seven final statements of Jesus recorded on the cross. And regardless of whether you believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, we need to understand that nearly all New Testament scholars, all historians, even secular ones, when they apply the, the standard criteria of historical investigation, they all find that the historicity of Jesus is certain. Meaning, there was a man named Jesus who walked the earth. Large crowds of people followed him. He was crucified by the Roman government. There's even historical evidence that the tomb where they placed him was empty, that his body could not be found. 
Now, we each have to decide for ourselves what that means. You have to decide if Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh died and resurrected for the sins of the world. But regardless of whatever you choose to believe, I, I hope you know, here at Element, we'll do our best to love you right where you are, whether you believe in that or not. And, and all that just to say, the evidence that Jesus did exist and that he died on a cross is clear even outside of the biblical accounts that we have in Christianity. The cross of Christ is perhaps the most brutal scene in history. Crucifixion itself is probably the worst form of capital punishment our world has ever known. Most of us know what crucifixion was, but just to bring us all on the same page, uh, the, the criminal or the victim in Jesus's case would be nailed or bound to a beam and then left there to hang, sometimes for days, until they eventually died of exhaustion, dehydration. Most likely they would die of asphyxiation. They would suffocate to death on the cross. As the body would hang there on the beam, your arms would go up. It would put too much stress on the lungs, and you could no longer breathe. And so to catch a breath, you had to, had to push off of your nailed feet, catch a breath, and then go back down again and hang on your nail-pierced wrists or hands. It was this agonizing battle between the, the, the excruciating pain of hanging by your, your hands, not being able to breathe, or pushing off on your nailed feet to catch a breath back down and back up, back down and back up until the body eventually gave out and the person would die. This is not counting the lashes that you would receive prior to crucifixion from what's called a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails, a leather whip with shards of glass or rock woven into the whip, and when hit with that, would literally tear the flesh away from the body. That was prior to being nailed to a tree. It's barbaric to say the least. I'm not sure this form of punishment should be given to anyone, let alone Jesus. Like we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, born of a virgin, sinless, perfect, spotless lamb of God. That not only did he do nothing wrong, but he also did everything right. He loved the unlovable, cared for the forgotten, healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, hope to the hopeless. He raised dead people back to life. That Jesus hung on a cross for six hours before he died. For six hours, he was nailed to a beam, suspended between heaven and earth. Most of his time on the cross was apparently silent, but he, he spoke seven different statements that are recorded in, in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus in the New Testament. We call them the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are, are the Gospels. They, they record together seven total statements from the cross. At first glance, these statements might seem insignificant, that they don't apply or matter to us. But as we're going to see in this series, and as I have found preparing for the series, like the next seven weeks are gonna be incredibly profound, highly impactful to our everyday lives. Today, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, 
chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a lot of scripture today, lots of stuff on the screen. So Luke 23, starting in verse 26, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll all be on the screens. You can follow along there. If you don't own a Bible, please don't leave without one. We'll give you one for free. Uh, make sure we get a Bible in your hands. They're, they're free out in the lobby at guest services or the next steps wall. Luke 23, we're gonna read verses 26 and 27, and then for sake of time, jump to verses 32 through 34. Here we go. So Jesus has already been arrested. He's been beaten, crown of thorns placed upon his head. It says this, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, here's the first of seven statements. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Next week, we'll pick up there and we'll see a statement that Jesus spoke to one of the criminals crucified with him. Father, Forgive them, he said. Some scholars in studying for this pointed out that at this point in a common crucifixion, many criminals would start begging for mercy. They would plead for their own forgiveness, but not Jesus. He had nothing to be forgiven from. He never once cried for mercy to be shown to him. Instead, he pleaded with the Father for mercy to be shown to the very ones who nailed him to the tree. Wow. A couple of commentaries I read said this, the pulpit commentary. These first of the seven words from the cross seem from their position in the record to have been spoken very early in the awful scene, probably while the nails were being driven into the hands and feet. Multiple scholars said they believed that the Lord spoke those words as the nails were piercing him. Father, forgive them. John Wesley, who I mentioned earlier, in the introduction says this, how striking is this passage? While they are actually nailing him to the cross, he seems to feel the injury they did to their own souls more than the wounds they gave him. And as it were, to forget his own anguish out of a concern for their own salvation. Lastly, Bible.org commentary. Jesus, since he was God in the form of man, could have condemned his torturers or destroyed them with his breath. But then what would his sufferings have accomplished? He came to save, not to judge. Not powerful. He came to forgive. Father, forgive them. As I've read those words now dozens of times preparing for this message, and as we hear them today, just those words alone from the cross are powerful. Like I could end the sermon right there and we'd have enough to ponder, but don't get too excited. I'm not ending right there. I have plenty more to say to you today. But it's powerful. 
There, there's actually a depth to these words that I think we need to understand that so there, there's something here we can learn. More than just how Jesus relates to us, but how we relate to him and how we are called to relate to those around us. So the big question we have to, to answer today is this, what can we learn from Jesus's words of forgiveness? What can we learn from Jesus's words of forgiveness? Three things we'll see today. The first one I see is this, number one, they are an example to us. They're an example to us. <clears throat> While they were driving the nails into his wrists, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The only way he could pray a prayer like that was if he had already forgiven them in his heart. It's awfully hard to release someone to the mercy of the Father if you've not released what they've done to you in your heart. So the question is for us this, what's my response while someone is sinning against me? What's my response while someone is saying bad things about me? What's my response while someone is offending me? Is it Father, forgive them? I'm releasing them to your mercy because I've already released them in my heart. I'm not sure I wanna answer that question out loud, what my response is while someone is offending me. And, and you might be thinking, Pastor Jeff, do we really need to go to that much of, are you, are you saying that we have to go to that much of an extreme in our forgiveness of others? It's not what I'm saying. I don't wanna do it either. But I do think it's what God's saying. In the New Testament letter of Ephesians, God, through a man named Paul, says this, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. That's a sermon series right there that we can't even get into. Verse 32. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. So for the believers in the room, if you're not a believer, you're kind of off the hook with this. But if you're a Christian, like, buckle up. How did Christ forgive us? Well, again, through Paul in the letter to the Romans, Romans 5 verse 8 says this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We're going to dig a little bit deep here, okay? So put on your, your theological digging cap and pull out your little shovel because we're gonna go deep for a second, okay? I think it's theologically safe to say that since God is not bound by time, he's an eternal God, the theological term is omnitemporal. It means he exists in the past, present, and future all at the same time, all equally, 
okay? That God's not bound by time. He's got some sort of divine flux capacitor with 1.21 gigawatts of power. Can I get a witness up in here for back to the future, right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Look it up. God's not bound by time is what I'm saying. So while Jesus was on the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them, not only was God in that moment, but he was also at the same time in our moments of sin. He's omnitemporal. So not only did Jesus die for us while we were yet sinners, but like the men who were driving the nails in his hands in that moment, he also died for us while we were sinning. So Jesus died for my sins while I committed them. And he died for you while you committed your sins. Yes, that sin you're thinking of right now that you hope no one ever knows you did. He said, Father, forgive them while you did that. That boggles my mind. He released us to the mercy of the Father because he'd already released us in his heart. So now we are then commanded to forgive others as God through Christ has forgiven us. And again, you might be thinking, is this really that serious? Do we really need to forgive others like this? Well, Jesus seemed to think so. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, the last thing we'll see in this point here. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hello. Anyone else challenged right now besides me? This is already my second time to preach it, and I'm convicted again. Right? So I feel like we need some encouragement after the pastor bludgeoned you for 15 minutes on forgiving others. So you want some encouragement? Second point is exactly that. What can we learn from Jesus' words of forgiveness? They are an example, yes, but number two, they are an encouragement to us. They're an encouragement to us. In the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, there were hundreds of prophecies about the coming of the Messiah that we now know was fulfilled in Christ. Prophecies about where he would be born, what he would do for people. Prophecies about someone close to him would betray him. Even prophecies about very things that the Messiah would say. While these words here were not literally prophesied that he would speak those exact words, the action of what he did here on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, this was a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. So in the book of Isaiah, 53, verse 12, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this about the coming Messiah. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. I don't know if you know what intercession is. I'll tell you. Intercession is the act of intervening on behalf of another person or the action of saying a prayer on behalf of another person. So here on the cross, we see Jesus, the Messiah, doing both parts. He is both intervening 
paying the price for our sins because we could not pay them ourselves. And he was praying on behalf of someone else, praying on behalf of those who were actually killing him in the moment and praying on behalf of all of us who would ever sin against him in our lives. He was an intercessor in that moment. J.C. Ryle, the famous Anglican bishop said this, while the blood of the greatest sacrifice started to flow, the greatest of all high priests started to intercede. It's awesome. So how is this encouraging today? <laughs> well, because Jesus continues to intercede for us. He continues to pray for us, not just for our forgiveness, but for our strength and our power and our comfort and our hope in him. One of the primary roles of Jesus is to intercede on our behalf. We, we learned this from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says this, there were many priests under the old system. So under the old Jewish system, there was priest after priest after priest, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Is that not amazing? Like think of all the people in the history of humanity that you would want to pray for you in your time of need. And that person, no matter how godly they are, no matter how great they can pray, pales in comparison to Jesus Christ himself interceding for you in your very moment of need. That as a believer in Jesus, in the midst of whatever you are going through, whatever you're required to face, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. He's praying that you would have the strength to endure and power over temptation and comfort in your hurting and that your hope would remain firmly anchored in his love alone. That if no one else knows what you're going through and no one else ever prays for you, Jesus lives forever to intercede on your behalf. That should encourage someone today. Should encourage our soul that he lives to intercede for those who believe. But listen, even if you don't believe, he still intercedes for you too. He intercedes for you too. He's praying to the Father the very prayer he prayed on the cross. That if you're here today and you've not put your faith in Jesus, here's what Jesus, this moment, is praying for you. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He's pleading for you to come to salvation by faith in him. That leads to the last thing we gotta see here. I, I can learn from Jesus' words of forgiveness. They are an example to us that as we've been forgiven, so we should forgive others. They're an encouragement to us that he lives forever to intercede on our behalf. Lastly, perhaps most importantly, I've implied it throughout the whole message. Number three is this. They are meant to be experienced by us. 
They're meant to be experienced by us. Father, forgive them. They were not just words that Jesus said. They are the way to experience salvation. That forgiveness has already been given. It is done. It is paid for. It is complete. But how do I get it? I have to receive it from him. It's already been paid for, but I have to actually receive it. So how do I receive it? Well, by faith in Jesus. God, through Paul in Romans 3, 22 through 25 says this, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Jesus actually said something very similar to this on the very night that he was betrayed and arrested. He and all the apostles, his closest friends, they all gathered in a room to celebrate Passover together. Passover was the most honored and celebrated holiday of all the Jewish holidays. It was established by God centuries before their time when he rescued the nation of Israel from their slavery in Egypt and he commanded them to celebrate Passover, their rescue from Egypt, once a year on a prescribed day. On Passover, the Passover lamb, a chosen lamb, would be sacrificed, shedding its blood for the forgiveness of all God's people. It was celebrated every year with the belief and the hope that God would one day send to them the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, to once and forever take away the sins of the people. And there, in their midst, at the table, celebrating Passover, the Passover lamb was sitting with them. And Jesus in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, tells the story this way. As they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. He broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine, gave thanks to God for it, gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And little did they know that just a few hours later, Jesus, the Passover lamb, on Passover weekend, would hang on a cross. And the very first thing he would say is, Father, forgive them. One of the last things he says to the disciples is, my blood is a sacrifice to forgive 
the first thing he would say on the cross, my blood has been shed. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. Forgive who? Those who killed him? Absolutely. The disciples? You bet. You and me? Yes. Why? Because all have sinned and all are in need of forgiveness. Every week in this series, we are going to celebrate communion together. I don't think we've ever done that every week in a series. It's often called the Lord's Supper. It's what Jesus established here in Matthew 26. The bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood poured out for us. Communion itself does not save you, by the way. Like we are saved by faith in Jesus. Communion represents or is a symbol of our salvation, but does not save us itself. That by faith that God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, died for our sins, rose from the dead. By faith in him, I'm forgiven of my sins. I repent of my sin. I, I turn to follow Jesus in a new way of life. It's by faith that we are forgiven. We're gonna close with worship and communion today. You don't have to be a member of Element Church to participate, but we do ask that you be in a right relationship with Jesus to do that. That means if you have not put your faith in Christ, you might wanna to do that today before communion. If you're a believer with some unconfessed sin in your life, you might wanna do some seeking, some soul searching with God today. The first song we're gonna sing is Jesus Till You Come. It's kind of an element classic or it's grown into one. It says in the song, we will be a light in the darkest place. We will be the ones to show your grace, Jesus Till You Come. I think it's fitting we're singing this song because decades after Jesus died and rose from the dead, the apostle Paul gave Christians some instructions on the Lord's Supper, on what we're about to do. And Paul said this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Or in other words, he didn't stay dead. <laughs> He's alive today. That Jesus is our living and reigning king. And one day he will return again to rescue those who believe in him. But until that day, he wants us to be a light in the darkest place. He wants us to be the ones to show his grace, Jesus, until you come again. We will announce your death for those who need to hear it, and we will tell the world our Jesus is alive. He's alive. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. And ask the band to come out as well. In this moment, I want you to reflect on those words of Jesus. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive today? To release to the mercy of the Father? Do you need to follow the example of Jesus? Is there... Is there is there someone here who just needs encouraged today? That no matter what you're going through, Jesus intercedes on your behalf right now. Have you ever experienced 
the saving grace of Jesus. If you haven't, you can do that right now. I'm gonna close here with a prayer, then the band's gonna lead us in worship and we're gonna participate in communion. And I want you to respond during communion and worship however you feel led. If you need to kneel down, if you wanna stand and sing, if you wanna sit and reflect, that's fine. But if, if you've never put your faith in Christ, you can say so, you can do that with this prayer I'm about to pray. And if you do, I'd love for you to find me or one of our pastors or volunteers or a prayer team member following the service and just let them know that you prayed to receive Christ today. Just pray this prayer silently in your heart to God. Father in heaven, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died in my place. He rose from the dead. So I, I give my life to you, Jesus. I confess all my sins to you. Everything I've done, I give it to you. Please wash me clean, make me new. Come into my heart. I repent of the way I've lived, my old life. I'm turning to follow you in a whole new way of life. Give me strength by your spirit to do that. Thanks for loving me, Jesus. I'm gonna do my best to love you back. And Lord, right now, we prepare our hearts for communion. We're gonna receive the bread, your body, and receive the juice representing your blood. And Lord, in doing so, we are reminded of your words, Father, forgive them. And we are announcing your death, Jesus, until you come again. Thank you for living in us, and thank you for dying in our place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.